It's time now for this week's episode of Tech It Out, the program poised on the cutting edge of technology. Outlook Enrichment is pleased to sponsor this edition of Tech It Out here on Radio Talking Book. For more information about Outlook Enrichment, please call 531-365-5051 or visit www.outlooken.org. Hello, friends. Welcome once again to another edition of Tech It Out here on Radio Talking Book. This is Ryan O., your temporary host. Normally, you're used to hearing Dennis Nelson. Sometimes you hear the good folks from AIN. But today, I wanted to discuss a topic that I think is uh, very important, perhaps more important than people realize. Twitter. What was Twitter? What is Twitter? And what will Twitter become? I thought it was important because um, it is proved to be a very singular organism in the world of social media. And of course, the large question beyond that, how do blind people interact with Twitter? How was it and how is it going so far? I had an uh, interaction with Steve Sawson uh, a while back when Elon Musk first took over. And so I want to say eight or nine months ago, Steve uh, and I talked about it a little bit on social media. And so I thought I'd bring him on. He is a tech expert. We can kind of discuss how blind people are doing as far as Twitter is concerned and what else might be out there. Steve, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. It is great to have you. Now, can you kind of first, before we get to the lovely Twitter question, tell us about your background and uh, how you got interested in tech and kind of some of your qualifications? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, people often ask if I've been blind all my life, and my answer is not yet, uh, but I was born (laughs) blind. And uh, (laughs) so I grew up uh, and uh, got to work with technology at a very young age. So I was really fortunate. Uh, Didn't realize that accessibility was a field as such. And so I went through school, went through college, and was waiting to get to work with my shiny new degree. And surprise, surprise, my phone was not ringing off the hook. And um, I'd gotten a call from someone who had gotten a job and wasn't able to start because their system wasn't very accessible. And he said, you know, Steve, I know you know a lot about this stuff. Could you help me out? I did. And he told other people. And that's sort of what launched my accessibility career. And that was 20 plus years ago. So I've worked in a number of different places, uh, for including uh, as a as a private contractor working for the VA and for the uh, main state Department of uh, yeah <laughs> Division for the Blind and Visually Impaired. Uh, and then I worked for Target uh, in the late, uh, just before 2010, 2011, around that era, uh, when they were going through a major accessibility lawsuit. And then I worked for a company called DQ, which does accessibility consulting for a lot of Fortune 50, Fortune 500 companies. And that was real exciting because I got to see how accessibility happens in a number of different industries. So it was like uh, being able to take a tour and see how things happen in in a lot of different areas, retail, insurance, banking, and that sort of stuff. And uh, now I do accessibility at a Midwest healthcare organization, uh, which I'm really passionate about because... I feel that if you're needing to interact with healthcare, uh, you probably are focused on health. And the last thing you want to do is be focused on the accessibility aspects of of that as well. So, No question. No question. I think we've established your bona fides, just a, a follow-up. Have you ever had much interaction with kind of what I think of as the big guns in the blindness field, Freedom Scientific, HIMSS? Quite a bit. Uh, interestingly enough, probably the biggest gun I've had interactions with was Apple. Uh, and Apple in the early 2000s uh, had bid on a contract in Maine. The governor then wanted to provide all middle school students with a laptop. The idea was to do this wireless classroom type of thing. It's not a new concept anymore, but back then it sure was. And they put this out to bid and Apple was one of the people that bid on it. And a bunch of people, including yours truly, was very much against Apple bidding on it because at the time, the Mac wasn't accessible. And I thought, you know, here we have an opportunity for blind kids to really be included. And we might be choosing a vendor that, because they're not accessible, uh, would exclude them. So we pushed back and went to the legislator and all that stuff. And Apple talked to us and other school districts that were uh, having sort of similar struggles. And out of that uh, came voiceover, which isn't to say that it came about strictly because of that, but it was really interesting to sort of watch voiceover evolve uh, because I was skeptical that it would. And it not only did, but 
as we know, it's in just about everything today from the Mac to the iPhone, Apple TV, and just about every other Apple thing I can think of. Steve, I forgot that you played such a role in the rise of Apple voiceover. So this, I think we've definitely established that you know what you're talking about when it comes to accessibility. So, uh, and thank you for that, by the way, I'm a big iPhone fan. And, and so I appreciate all of your efforts. Let's look at the history of Twitter real quick. And I, I know I didn't really prepare you with uh, with questions, but what do you know about the history of Twitter? Where did it come from? And what kind of, what was its evolution? Well, I I don't know all of the history, but I do know that when I first started hearing about it on This Week in Tech, which uh, is a program produced by Leo Laporte, I thought this has got to be the dumbest thing ever. I, at the time, you could... <laughs> You could only write 140 characters. And I thought, who would do this? Who has so much time on their hands that they could tweet out things? And I was looking at some of the Twitter feeds and I saw such inspiring messages as just had an egg salad sandwich for lunch. And I thought, that's awesome for you. But why do I care about that? And I didn't want to join it. But the idea was somehow interesting to people in that you could communicate in 140 characters, these short messages, and you could, you could broadcast your, your status or basically what you were doing and people could keep up with you, uh, could follow your life. And the reason it was such a short message was because back then you could actually receive those messages as text messages to your phone. And this worked internationally. And there is a, Hard, then, Well, then there was a hard character limit of 140 characters. If you received a text message on the phone, uh, it couldn't, couldn't ex- actually, I'm sorry, it couldn't exceed 160 characters. So Twitter uh, brought it back to 140. And so that's why there was this limitation. The idea being that you could interact with this Twitter thing by texting a phone number from your phone. So you didn't need a browser. You didn't need a computer. You just needed a phone my good old Nokia phone worked great back in the day. So we're we're going way back. But anyone who had a phone that could text could get on Twitter. And that really was made it possible for people all over the world to get on this social network uh, who may not have good internet or any internet at all, or might not have access to a computer at home, but might have, you know, an, uh, a Nokia or a flip phone or any sort of device. And so the concept was interesting, although, you know, seeing about the person's egg salad sandwich, I just, I couldn't really understand what the big deal was. So eventually I signed up for Twitter, more or less just because I was curious what it was all about. And who knows, maybe someone would care if I made an egg salad sandwich. So I I went ahead and signed up. And uh, I think my very first tweet was something like, hello, is this thing on? Because I couldn't think of what I could possibly have that might be of interest. Uh, But I started reading about a conference that was going on in Australia, and someone was tweeting out from the conference uh, what the speaker was saying. And I thought, wow, this is kind of neat. It's kind of like being there without being there. And again, we're going way back and not every conference was streamed or anything like that. And it was basically someone writing this series of messages. And I thought this is kind of neat because I could interact with them. I could I could tweet back at them. And so it was it was really interesting. So I don't know how the idea of Twitter came about, but what was really fascinating about it was it was a way for people to communicate regardless of the technology that the person had. As long as you had a phone that could text, you could communicate. You didn't need high band, you know, high, high speed uh, bandwidth. You didn't need a fancy new computer. You didn't need a lot of disk space. You needed just a flip phone or something that could text. And that made it available to people all over the world that may not have uh, you know, access to other communication channels. So um, then news networks started distributing news on it, weather started distributing alerts through it, and it became this, this sort of unified channel through which you could find out if your friend was making an egg salad sandwich, or you could find out if, you know, uh, weather was going to be severe over the next few hours, that sort of thing. So it, it really grew and blossomed from there. I would say that over the past 12 years or so, what we have learned is that Twitter only had one serious competitor and that was uh, Facebook, at least until Instagram uh, came along, and of course, now we have TikTok, and we have a, a number of things. What do you think made Twitter so successful? What was the ingredient that, even I would say, over Facebook, made it so so effective and had an impact? 
I think the thing that made it very successful was it was super easy to use. All you had to be able to do is send a text to a number and that's it. And if you could send a text, you could use Twitter. So even the signup process in the early days was something like you sent uh, your first text would just contain the username that you wanted to have. And if it was available, it would say, okay, and that's it. So all you could do is send your text message and in your text message, you would write whatever that tweet was that you wanted to send. And that's it. No website to go to necessarily, no sign up, no complicated form, no CAPTCHA, no nothing. Uh, it was very, very easy. And I think that appealed to people who liked the idea maybe of communicating, but didn't like the idea of of a complicated website, uh, especially for folks for whom English isn't their first language, um, needing to figure out, you know, what what does this mean that I'm about to agree to, all of that sort of stuff. All you had to be able to do to interact with all of Twitter was be able to send a text. And by the time Twitter launched, that was second nature to to most folks. So nothing complicated to learn, nothing complicated to buy, nothing complicated to do. And I think the ease of use is really what differentiated Twitter from Facebook and everything else. So, of course, once it became socially and uh, even politically significant, it was only a matter of time before uh, accessible apps would become available. What do you remember about the history of those early apps that blind people were using to access Twitter? Gosh, there was a lot of them. They, there is even an app for the Nokia back in the day. Uh, and I believe there was some um, Windows Pocket apps. So probably you could have had one on your Q9. Um, Nokia had a bunch of apps. One was called Twikini, which was the craziest name ever, but it worked great. <laughs> it was accessible. You could use the little joystick on the Nokia to move around the timeline. Um, it was the first time I worried about running out of the 100 megabytes a month that I used to get with AT&T. I thought, wow, I might actually hit my 100 megabytes a month. Can you, right. can you imagine? Uh, there was a number of iOS clients available. And uh, one of them was called Tweety, which I thought was kind of cute. There was Tweetings, which I believe is actually or was actually still around. But Tweety was so successful that Twitter eventually bought it and it became the base of uh, the modern Twitter client. They basically, instead of building their own, they bought a company out and they took its client and then you know rebranded it and over time made it their own. Uh, but I was super sad because Tweety was a very great client. It was very accessible. The author was uh, super responsive. Uh, and then there was another great client around the same time called Twitterific, uh, which is an awesome name. I love Twitterific. It was oh, such a great me, client. You're making me groan with with grief, buddy. We'll, we'll get to that. But uh, just the, the mention, of, mention of the name, Steve, just makes me want to cry. But anyway, uh, continue. It, it was great. It it really revolutionized, is if if that's the right word, how I interacted with Twitter uh, yeah. on the Mac and on the phone. And Twitterific was such a great. It's such a great name too. I loved how like people would use alliterations of the word Twitter in their names, like Tweetings and Tweety and Twitterific, and and <laughs> I, it was just fun to see people be creative with some of the names of their clients. But Twitterific was, in fact. Truly Twitterific. It was great. Yeah. It was accessible. The the uh, developers were uh, very accessibility minded, which really impressed me because they're you know indie developers. They weren't making making a lot of money off of it, and you know especially in the early days. Uh, I mean, you know, why buy a client when you can just send a text? So it was really awesome that they they sort of recognized, hey, we want this thing to work for everyone, and made it very accessible. Um, so those were probably the earliest mobile clients that were out there and i guess uh, the the probably the earliest desktop clients i can i can think of i remember i had one called jotter uh, that was one of the oh, first yeah. ones i had um and and a lot of the desktop ones were were very good with the arrow keys and the sound packs that you could get they were specialized for these twitter clients so at one point i had a neat clock one where Every time I would get a tweet, it would chime a certain way. And if I get a direct message, it would chime a different way. And there were all kinds of different sound packs. Jotter is the only one I remember, except, of course, for Chicken Nugget, uh, which I believe came a little bit later. 
and tweet blue and, and some of those things, but uh, yeah. Uh, and then, of course, it, it, it be, at the very beginning, it was easy just to go to the website and and do it that way. But it was a matter of time before the desktop app would just be so much easier when you're a blind person. It's true. And the nice thing is you could use whatever app worked for you. So it, there was if you if you love Jotter and that was your thing and you're used to it and I love Twitterific, um, you know, the two of us could communicate. We didn't have to have this argument about, well, you know, you, you, in order to use this service, you have to use this client oh, or, yep. you know, you, everyone could do what worked for them. And if, if, you know, if uh, someone else wanted to not use any client, just use their phone, that was cool too. That would work just fine. So it, it, you know, people could use it the way that made sense for them versus the way that made sense for the, for the company. I think that was really empowering too, because that's, uh, I guess we sort of have that with email, but email is probably the only other thing I can think of where you have really a lot of control over what what program you use to access it. With the yeah. web, maybe, but even the web, there's you know you you're you're limited to really just a few browsers, and that's it. Um, email is the only thing I can think of, but with Twitter, you know, whoever wanted to make a client could, and whoever wanted to use what was free to do. So it was, it was good times back in the day. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Good times indeed. All right. Let me ask you this. One of the things that came up in, in our initial interaction, and I think it was around late October, early November, uh, was you said uh, something about the Twitter accessibility team. Do you remember the beginnings of that? When and where did the ex- uh, Twitter accessibility team get started? I don't. No, except that it happened quietly, slowly, and effectively. Uh, at first, there was no accessibility team. Uh, and part of that was because there wasn't much to make accessible. Um, and then as they started building their own client and the website and that sort of stuff, um, things changed. And a lot of people had been complaining about accessibility. And I believe they brought like one person on to like do all the accessibility stuff uh, and it was one of these situations that unfortunately I've seen happen many times where, you know, let's let's bring on an accessibility person and not necessarily listen, but we'll have this person and we're doing accessibility because, you know, we have a person that does that. Um, and it was really difficult uh, over time, though, that person was able to make some traction and uh, get things done. And then the team slowly grew. And um, I was surprised uh, when the the entire team was eventually laid off. I was surprised how many people were actually on it. Um, of course, Twitter itself had had gone through a number of changes in terms of what they were offering and the the services that were available. But the team that supported that was uh, was pretty large. That was it. Was definitely made an impact because you weren't the only one talking about that. I think it's fair to say, and again, this is a nonpartisan. Uh, podcast uh, and we're nonpartisan at Radio Talking Book, but I think it's uh, safe to say that Trump uh, had his own outsized effect on Twitter. It felt like he presided once he won the election. It felt as if he really made things happen on Twitter uh, through that medium and everybody kind of ate it up. Do you feel like that's a fair characterization? He did so certainly more than Obama. Even though Obama ran a really uh, coordinated digital effort, Trump seemed to take it to the next level. Is that fair to say in your view? Yeah, I think so. And I, I, you know, I think the idea of a president tweeting was itself kind of novel. I remember when Obama was president, there was a lot of uh, stuff happening, a lot of discussion happening because uh, he he wanted to be able to participate in some of this, and there are uh, concerns, you know, security concerns, of course, but also, you know, everything the president writes is supposed to be archived. And so, how do you do that in in something like social media, where you know you're not going to like write everything in advance and archive it? You know, everything is sort of off the cuff. How do you do that? And I remember reading about a BlackBerry because BlackBerry was still a very popular device. Uh, that had been oh, modified Blackberry. for him um, specifically for Obama to try to address the security concerns and to archive things for the you know the library and whatever and all of these things that I I, I had no idea was you know a, a thing had never thought about it but I think you know by the time Trump got to office it 
was a, a lot of that had had kind of changed. I mean, there was Wi-Fi in the White House. There's, you know, the, they had already figured out how a president could directly get on Twitter versus working through a communications team, you know, a social media team. And um, I think it, it in many ways was divisive, but it was also really cool because I think for the first time, you know, the possibility existed that, you know, hey, I could interact directly with the president potentially. I mean, you know, what are the odds that that he would read my particular tweet and and respond, right? That the odds would be against it. But I think that was for a lot of people, what drew them in is, you know, for the first time, this person is where I am and and I can communicate directly with them, um, at least, you know, theoretically and and even not in theory, right? I mean, people did get responses. So I think really mesmerized people with that possibility of, wow, this is someone I could communicate with that I never otherwise would be able to, you know, or at least the possibility exists that I can. And so that's really awesome. But, you know, also it's a very powerful thing when you're able to send a message out and reach, you know, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people with that message. Um, it, you know, it's, it's not until you reach that many people that you kind of understand what kind of impact a message can have, and it may not always have the impact that's intended. And, um, I, you know, I think that sort of contributed to some of the divisiveness over time. Well, and the reason I'm bringing up Trump, of course, again, we're nonpartisan, but but it's it's important to understand the context is because that would continue to fuel the ire of conservatives when he was kicked off. And there was a lot of disinformation and misinformation and lies, blatant lies out there. And then in 2022, Elon Musk buys Twitter. That in itself is one hell of a story, which I could never fully track. It was like he wanted to buy it. And then there was a time when he didn't want to buy it and he wanted to get out of it and he couldn't get out of it. And then eventually he takes it over. Sir, do you remember exactly when he took over Twitter? I remember the drama around it. And, you know, the, the other piece that changed, which I think factored into the Elon drama is, is over time, uh, Twitter went public, they became a public company, and then they were sort of expected to return, you know, uh, profit to shareholders. And so suddenly you have this cool platform where everyone's tweeting about their egg salad sandwiches. And how do you monetize that? Right. And so right. Twitter had to become profitable because that's the deal when you become public. Um, and, you know, as part of that, how do you figure out, you know, what value, um, how do you put value on things like this? You know, how do you, how do you, um, value the users that you have and, um, quantify the engagement and all of that sort of stuff. And there was a lot of, uh, sort of swirl, I'll, I'll say around, around exactly how to do that. And so I think Elon really loved the idea of buying Twitter as far as buying a platform that was a, a mass communications type system, right. With, with millions of users on it, um, the ability to have that. And, and I think on some level, and I know he, he said, to, words to this effect. And I think he, he meant it. I think Elon does, uh, believe in, in to a degree in fair, uh, ability, you know, for people to communicate and, and not be repressed and that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that that weighed into his decision to buy it, but he spent a lot of money on it. And I think then had questions about, gosh, what am I really buying here? Like the concept is cool, but I'm spending billions of dollars and, I don't know that I'm going to get anything back because I'm not sure how many users the platform has. Um, you know, there's, there's, for example, back in the early days, I set up two accounts, one, one by mistake. And then the one I still use the one I set up by mistake, I lost the password to, and I cannot log into it, but the account still exists. It still counts as an active account. There's no way to delete it. Uh, I can't reset it. It's 13 years old or so it has one tweet, uh, but it's a, it's a quote active account, right? It's, you know, no one's ever going to advertise to it, but it's counted as an active account uh, in terms of stats. And so, you know, I think Elon had questions about, wait a minute, they're saying they have all these users. Are these real users? Are these bots? Are these users who have maybe given up on Twitter years ago, but they still count as active users? You know, what, what, 
what did I, what am I paying for? And I think that's when he was like, nope, don't want to buy it. And then, uh, you know, there was the threat of legal action and he said, fine, I'll buy it. And so we had this sort of weird back and forth, you know, and I, but I almost felt bad for him. I mean, you know, you could argue that, you know, well, you should have researched this ahead of time, but you know, I mean, we've all impulse shopped, maybe not on that level, <laughs> but you know, I mean, you buy a thing and you think, Oh God, do I really want to buy this? But now you're in line and there's like 15 people behind you and, and, you know, you just want to get home and you just, Oh, fine. I'll just buy the thing. Maybe, you know, I, yeah. I mean, the numbers are much bigger than anything I've impulse shopped, but I, I get the struggle. <laughs> so let's, let's bring it back after he buys Twitter, let's bring it back to uh, accessibility uh, for blind people. Uh, there's a lot of conservatives and right wingers and, and even a lot of free speech advocates that are cheering the fact that he got it and you uh put out a tweet and i can't remember it exactly but essentially you were concerned when he fired the entire accessibility board you were worried that a lot of people around the world would lose their voice can you give me a look into your thinking at the time uh what made you so nervous yeah absolutely so i think to be to be a little bit fair uh elon didn't say, you know, I want to get rid of the accessibility team. Uh, one of the things he did was he really streamlined Twitter because he spent a lot of money and, and you know, had to somehow make money with this thing he bought. Uh, and so he he streamlined a lot of of employees at, at Twitter and, and operations and that sort of stuff. And the accessibility team was part of a bigger team. So I don't think he targeted the accessibility team per se, I think he targeted a larger team that he didn't feel uh, was needed at Twitter. And as part of letting that team go, he also lost the accessibility team. And I've seen that in many organizations where, you know, things are so multi-layered. Uh, I mean, even at the organization where I work now, I'm technically part of a design team. Uh, uh, and so, you know, like if they decided, gosh, we don't want designers, we're just going to have all our designs done by an outside agency. Let's get rid of our design team. Uh, inadvertently, they would get rid of the accessibility team, uh, you know, and and a few other smaller teams too that sort of reside under this broad umbrella. So, I I think you know he, he didn't show up and was like, I know I'm going to save money. I'll get rid of the accessibility team. I think he got rid of a bigger team and swept up in that was unfortunately the accessibility team. The reason I was so concerned, though, was, you know, we're very fortunate here to have a lot of technology and the ability to get it. A lot of us have have been provided with technology through various programs. Um, technology on the whole is not as expensive as it is in other parts of the world. Um, but that isn't true everywhere. And there are places, uh, you know, where people really are limited in the technology that they have access to and uh, the services that they have access to. And, and um, you know, without having a certain uh, level of skill or a certain level of proficiency with English and Twitter, you know, even toward the end still was easy to use and still was easily available on uh less modern technology uh, and and didn't require, you know, broadband. So you could use it in places um, where, you know, internet connectivity may not be stable or, or consistent or indeed fast. And my thought was that, you know, for many people, uh, Twitter was a way to tune into the world and know kind of what was going on. And uh, that could potentially be lost if it became uh, inaccessible, that that would be cut off, uh, not intentionally, but if all of a sudden the timeline wouldn't read anymore, uh, it would be really hard to follow uh, people and, and understand what's going on. And I think a lot of people had become dependent to a degree on Twitter, both to receive information and also to send information out. And uh, my concern was that that could easily disappear uh, not intentionally, but unintentionally, because there was no one there to say, hey, wait a minute, if if we do this, this bad thing is going to happen. Uh, they may have done it anyway, but without anyone there to caution, uh, you know, there would be nothing preventing it from happening. And uh, so that was that was where my concern was was really coming from. 
Well, that was last October, Steve. Here we are in July of 2023. Let's talk about some of the changes that have happened on Twitter uh, and to Twitter in this intervening nine or 10 months. I remember at first, my view was let's not panic. Elon Musk, he's just a business guy. We don't know accessibility is going to be broken. That was kind of, in a nutshell, my response to you. That was in late October of 22. And I remember sometime in March, I can't remember the exact day, but it was a Thursday night around nine o'clock. My Twitterific stopped working. And yeah. it wasn't long before I figured out they broke Twitterific deliberately. Uh, and then I started hearing reports, other Twitter apps uh, that a lot of blind people were using as third-party clients were also not working uh, both on the iPhone, on Androids, on desktops, on Macs, everywhere. What? How did that look from your perspective? Well, it, it was, of course, very sad because the, the, one of the reasons I loved Twitter was that everyone could use it in the way that made the most sense for them. And that was clearly going away. Uh, and so from that perspective, I was sad. I wasn't super surprised because, again, um, you know, he is a businessman. He has to make money. And the only way you can make money is to understand what it is that you have so that you can you can, you know, value it. Uh, and that's really tough when everyone is doing their own thing. It's hard to understand how the service is being used. Uh, for example, if, if I'm counting on an ability to distribute ads to, to, um, people that use my service and people are using a client that blocks those ads or doesn't permit those ads, well, advertisers aren't going to advertise with me because they're going to say, well, geez, you know, you, you can't even reach all of the people that use your service because they're using clients that block those ads or that don't permit them. And they're right, you know, and so the only way to really monetize it uh, easily or quickly would be to just not allow that stuff to happen, right? Cut off any sort of third party client access, then you control everything about the experience, you know, you, you control yep. the network, the client, um, I think longer term, there's other ways to deal with it. But, you know, he, I, I, it's hard to get in anyone else's head, right? But again, back to my impulse purchase, right? He bought a thing and he's got it home and it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I spent this much money. Um, I, I could see him wanting to uh, turn this thing profitable as soon as possible, given how much he paid for it. And I would love to think that, gosh, if I was ever in his shoes and had done this, I would have approached it a different way. But I don't know, because uh, trying to monetize something like Twitter is a longer term prospect, and it would really take a lot of time and and work to make that happen. And, um, you know, he, I probably want to make money with it sooner rather than later. And so it probably was the fastest means to an end, or probably that's how he uh, viewed it. Again, not wanting to target people with disabilities or blind people, but uh, wanting to target the ability of anyone to use clients that would circumvent ads or any other thing that they might do to generate revenue. Right. I think that was really the driver for it. And yep. yeah, it was very sad. Well, of course we're all funneled for, for those of us that have chosen to stay. Um, and, and you and I both are still on Twitter. We are funneled through the regular app. How has your user experience uh, been using that? Well, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, one of the things that gets confusing sometimes is the difference between user experience and accessibility. Um, and the reason Yay. I mentioned that... I'm, I'm applauding you, Steve, because this is such a critical point. So listeners, please pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> Thank Go you. ahead. Um, I... I get a lot of email from people uh, where I work because uh, I, I have the accessibility inbox comes to me. So if someone has an accessibility complaint or concern, they, they write to me. And some of the messages I get do legitimately have accessibility issues in them. Um, I tried to do this. This doesn't work. There's an accessibility problem. But a lot of the messages I get are, I just don't like the way that it works for me. Therefore, it's inaccessible. And uh one of the things that I, I tell people is, you know, accessibility is about equal access. It doesn't mean better access and it doesn't mean good experience. It'd be great if it meant those things, but it doesn't. Um, you can have a very crummy experience and make it accessible. 
uh, and it still be a very crummy experience. As long as it's equally crummy for everyone, it's accessible, right? It doesn't have to be a good experience. And so uh, where this impacts Twitter or my, my thoughts of Twitter is I've never been a fan of even when the accessibility team was still in full swing, I just never liked the Twitter client because I didn't like the way that things were laid out. I didn't like the way certain things were promoted. I get that that's kind of how they make money with Twitter, but I didn't like it. I didn't like the client. I didn't, you know, uh, but I didn't not like it for accessibility reasons. I liked it. I didn't like it because of the experience of that, of, of using it. And, you know, fast forwarding to today, um, you know, I still don't like it. I, I feel like the only way to use it is to read tweets backward from top to bottom, newest to oldest. And I kind of want to read them oldest to newest, but then things don't make any sense. Um, and that frustrates me, but that's not accessibility and that's more user experience. And so, uh, there have been some accessibility issues that have have crept in with time. Uh, fortunately, they haven't been major. Uh, nothing that's been a, a, a blocker uh, to using Twitter, which is great. You know, it, it hasn't been all doom and gloom, but it is unfortunate because what really has suffered by virtue of being funneled into their client is that the experience is not the the same caliber as I had kind of gotten used to with something. No, it sure isn't. Terrific. It is not. Um, let me, Steve, let me give you an example of accessibility versus user experience. And, and you tell me which camp it falls into. I think on the Twitter app, it is very difficult, problematically so, to locate the compose tweet button. I figured out how to do it. If I touch the bottom left tab, which is the home tab on the bottom left corner of the screen and swipe once to the left, there's the compose tweet button. But if I'm just looking around with my finger, it is nowhere to be found. That, to me, whereas a, a sighted person can just look at the screen and tap it, that's an accessibility issue. Am I correct or am I incorrect on that? I think you are correct. Um, it's. I think what's happening is that you have to be in a certain place on the screen for that button to show up now. And that it used to be in one place and now it sort of floats around. I don't think, I don't think that button stays in the same place anymore. Uh, like it used to, I think they, they moved it and I don't know why they did, if it was to create extra screen real estate or what the whole point of that was, but the button I don't think does physically stay in the same place anymore. And so that's why when we explore by touch and move, you know, finger around to find it, uh, it's not there because it visually isn't there until you scroll or do something that makes it visually show back up. But when you swipe from that left tab, uh, which, by the way, is a great way to find that button, I always flick up or down a few screens until the button shows back up and I can find it again. So your, your way is much faster. I'm glad yeah, that give you that told a me shot this. and see what you think. Yeah, I I think that's uh, I, it. It is an accessibility problem, sort of, because it. Then the reason I say sort of is because if it's not showing up visually, that probably frustrates sighted users too, who are ah. like, "Where the heck is this stupid compose button?" And then they scroll the screen and it shows up again magically, and and that could be very frustrating as well. Well, Steve, you were very diplomatic a few minutes ago talking about Elon. I will be less so. I think he did this impulse buy, and I think he has no idea what he's doing. Based on what I'm seeing, um, you talked about monetizing the public company and user satisfaction for the experience. I'm not seeing any of that based on not only my own experience, but all of the feedback I'm seeing from everybody, even people that are not hostile to Musk or the things he's doing. They're all saying without exception, this user experience is not that great. For me, it was a major step down from Twitterific, but for a lot of people, it's simply, for instance, the removal of the chronological timeline. Um, these yeah. algorithms they're trying to use where they try to guess, and now there's two different columns. You have the following column and the for you column. And for me anyway, it's, it just seems to be sorting my users, but for a lot of people, it's promoting a whole bunch of stuff they don't care about. Yep. So, and 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 that's not even we haven't even touched yet some of the things he's tried to do, talking about limiting tweet viewing and 
his free speech, you know, quote unquote, concerns at the beginning. And now if you're from China or Turkey, that may or may not, in fact, be the case. There is so much he's doing that just strikes me as erratic and ill-considered. I, I don't know how you look at it any other way, whether it's accessibility or business or from any point of view. Yeah, I, I think that's unfortunately very true. I, I think a lot of it is erratic and a lot of it is also um, reacting to things that, uh, again, you know, when you have a huge network, there's sort of this weird ripple effect. And I think you, you do something, it gets magnified and people respond in a way. And now you have to deal with a response, uh, possibly, and in, in, well, probably an angry, angry response that you didn't count on, but now is, is a huge problem, right? So for example, he, uh, when it was no longer allowed for the third-party clients, a lot of third-party clients started trying to sort of hack around that a little bit. And there are still some that are successful. And um, people started trying to capture all of the content on Twitter, figuring it might go away. So they they would ping it with various bots to try to read essentially all of the tweets, right? All of the Twitter. And so to shut that down, he implemented this, you know, limiting on how many tweets you can read. It, it I don't think it was really for humans to not be able to read. It was this idea that as a bot, I could go through and categorize, you know, 50,000 tweets, you know, and just run overnight. Um, but I'm going to, you know, use Twitter's resources in, in doing that. So to again, make that not possible, you limit the amount of tweets anyone can consume. And that would include any sort of bot or automated thing. But, you know, that also makes it bad for humans that might want to read more than 800 tweets in a day or whatever the limit is. And erratic is a good term because I remember when he, he first announced it and then he like said, okay, never mind, we're going to raise the limit. And then we're going to lower the limit. And it was like all over the place. Like, what is the limit? Like, give us a number of it. And he was like, no, no, we're going to do this number now. So clearly it wasn't, it either wasn't thought through or it was thought through. He made an announcement. Everybody hated it, which he somehow didn't anticipate. And then he realized that, okay, I've got to regroup here. Cause um, you know, this, this isn't going to work. I, yeah. I think it's just compounded. He's also made it difficult for um, applications to post to Twitter. Uh, for example, uh, WordPress is a blogging platform that's used by roughly 30 to 40% of the internet. And um, you can have your posts show up on Twitter, uh, but it's no longer allowed for applications other than the Twitter client to post anything to Twitter. Yeah. So absolutely absurd. Yeah. So if I'm a, a news organization or any any big corporation, um, am I expected to have someone with a dedicated iPhone who's going to post for me on Twitter? Like, that's just ridiculous, right? So the, the people that are contributing content that it is going to be read by uh, the masses, you know, news organizations, large companies, people like that, you know, the, the, the person making their egg salad sandwich is still going to be tweeting from his phone, but you know, our larger companies now expected to do everything through the, the Twitter client or the Twitter website. That's just not how anything is yeah. done. And so it, it's, uh, you know, a decision that's made it not only difficult for users, but for people who would contribute content to the platform suddenly find themselves in this weird place where they can't, contribute content anymore in a way that makes sense for them. And if it doesn't, then they're just not going to do it. Well, Steve, of course, you and I can sit here all day and complain about Twitter at this point, but uh, being that we're in a free market economy, it was only a matter of time before competitors and alternatives to Twitter came along. I remember the first one was Parler. That was supposed to be right-wing Twitter, and uh, they were around circa, I want to say 2019, 2020. I don't think they're around anymore. But now we've got Mastodon, we've got Sky Blue, and the most promising one looks like it might be Threads, which is another Zuckerberg uh, product. Oh, boy. Um, what's your take on those? Well, I, I didn't do anything with uh, Parler or, or Blue Sky, which iOS, if you use the Samantha voice, calls Blue Ski. I think that's kind of oh, funny. Oh, you're right. Blue, Blue Ski. Thank you. 
uh, so I, I, I don't know. I think those were not, I, while they were designed to be Twitter competitors, I think they were also in large part to um, fill the gap of, of Trump being banned from Twitter, uh, not just not just him, but this idea that, you know, we want a place that's truly free speech, not that's like pseudo free and uh, that sort of thing. You know, they weren't looking necessarily to take over Twitter, but just to be alternatives for groups that, you know, uh, wanted alternatives, which is awesome. Uh, Mastodon is fascinating in its own right because it's it's open source. It's free. And the way that it works is it's it it's uses something called federation. And the idea is that it's not centralized, meaning it's not owned by any one particular company or organization. Uh, I can have my own Mastodon server with my own users, and you can have your own Mastodon server with your own users. And because of the magic of federation, our two servers can talk to each other. And so my users can talk to your users. And so I signed up a while ago, and the only people using Mastodon were people who were talking about Mastodon. It was like, hey, this is a great concept. Yeah, it's a great concept. So it was like this weird echo chamber. And so uh, when everything started happening with Twitter, suddenly people started discovering Mastodon. And it really was challenging at first because there were a lot of different servers that were, um, you know, uh, hosted by people, some some of them in their basements and other places. And suddenly they were getting overwhelmed by all of these people coming from Twitter. And um, it, it took a little while for things to settle down. But the neat thing about Mastodon and more so than Mastodon is this, this whole, what they're calling the Fediverse, uh, of which Mastodon is a part, is this idea that let's find a way to communicate without having a central hub or a central ownership of it. And the closest sort of thing to what Federation is, is email, really. I mean, I can have a an account on Gmail uh, and you might have an account on iCloud.com and we can still email each other, even though I'm using Gmail and you're using something else. Uh, we're still able to send email because there's a way for email servers to to talk to each other in a standardized way. And that's really what, what the Fediverse and Federa Federation is all about. It's this idea that you know, I, I can have my social network, maybe it's called Mastodon, maybe it's called something else. And um, it can communicate with users who are using an entirely different social network. Very difficult to monetize something like that, but very powerful in that uh, if one of them goes away, or if one of them decides to enact some sort of rules that uh, people don't like, um, the whole thing doesn't just end it, you know, people can migrate to another one. Um, and so it's very open and Mastodon is, is probably the largest one in that space. There's a bunch of others as well that exist. And um, I think conceptually, it's really cool. It's a little bit confusing, I think, for people coming directly from Twitter. But the concept, like I say, is very much like email. And um, it's it's neat to take it to see it take off. Uh, Enter stage right, Mark Zuckerberg with threads. And I find threads fascinating because uh, while it is owned by Meta, uh, they are promising to federate it in an upcoming version. Now, hopefully they deliver on that promise, but the idea is they, they want to own it, but they also wanna open it up so that it can communicate with uh, other social networks, be that Mastodon or other, other networks on the Fediverse. And if they do that, that could be extremely powerful. Uh, Threads got 50 million users overnight, not because 50 million people signed up, but because in order to use Threads, all you have to do is have an existing Instagram account. Uh, so for example, when I signed into it, I used my Instagram account that I haven't used in probably four or five years. Um, I don't even remember when I set my Instagram account up, but if you have one, you can log into Threads uh, without doing anything else. So what what Zuckerberg brings to the table with threads is not just a new social network, but he also has the user base. They're already signed up. You know, anyone who has an Instagram account or has ever had one is already on threads. And so um, the 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 50 million people overnight thing is is fascinating. But a lot of those people 
we're already there um, by virtue of having an Instagram account. And that's hugely powerful because most businesses have to find their customers and, and their users. Uh, he showed up with them. And so that's, that's fascinating to me. And if they really do federate it, um, you know, I, I kind of think of it as, as like maybe the more modern version of AOL. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers way back when AOL. Oh yeah. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a service that was easy to use. People loved it. Um, but it didn't lock you in. I mean, you had, you know, the AOL services and whatever, but you could email people outside of AOL and you could jump on AOL's, uh, instant messaging chat rooms and talk to people outside of AOL. So it was this idea that, you know, let's create a good experience for people that, that want to pay us and yet open it up so that we're not keeping people stuck here. They can communicate and interact with people outside of our sphere. And I could see this threads being a sort of a similar thing where meta owns it, monetizes it, um, which, which doesn't mean they're going to charge users. It means more than, you know, maybe through advertising or something, um, you know, do things the way they want to do them, but not restrict people from being able to communicate to and from the network, uh, you know, to other federated networks, whether it's uh, Mastodon or uh, Friendly or any of the other networks that are out there. And um, that it, it's, you know, sort of full circle back to AOL again, in terms of, of how that kind of worked, which is really interesting. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with threads. How are Mastodon and threads from an accessibility standpoint? If the if the National Federation of the Blind is posting their the bulk of their convention stuff on Mastodon, I have to assume that it's pretty friendly to blind people. Well, Mastodon is uh, it's since it's open source and nobody owns it. Uh, the nice thing about it is we're kind of where we were in those early days of Twitter, where anybody who wants to can make a client for it. Uh, so the official Mastodon client works pretty well, and the website is pretty accessible. But there are lots of Mastodon clients out there, uh, some of them made by the same people that made the Twitter clients, uh, which is awesome. Uh, we don't have uh, the Twitterific folks have not made a Mastodon client. Uh, but for anyone who's used the client called Spring on Twitter, which is a, was, was a very accessible Twitter client, um, uh, that developer has created a Mastodon client called Mona, M-O-N-A, uh, which is also very accessible. So what Mastodon brings back to the table is this idea that people can build clients and use Mastodon in the way that makes sense to them. So Mastodon's web page is pretty accessible, but what makes it very appealing is that you have a choice of clients you can use and, uh, you know, accessibility sort of ranges, um, you know, the gambit in terms of how accessible those clients are. But there's lots of them and and more being developed every day. So we're seeing a lot of clients that uh, have gone by the wayside with Twitter coming back in Mastodon and a lot of new ones being developed, um, many of which have accessibility built in, which is awesome because it makes, again, for an awesome accessible experience. How about threads? How does that look? Threads? Um, you know, the, uh, the deal with threads is you have to use the threads client. That's it. If you don't want to use a threads client, you can't use threads. Uh, I don't know if they're going to open that up and allow third-party developers to develop clients for it or not. I hope that they do, but right now you have to use the threads client. It's not terrible, uh, which is hardly a raving review. Uh, the thing I find frustrating is that, for example, you cannot add alt text to images. So if you want to add descriptive uh -oh. text to an image, you can't do that. Yeah, that's not good. That's not good. And it's frustrating because Facebook, you can. So you'd think Meta would know this because they are already doing it with other uh, things that they have, but, but not on threads, at least not yet. So I don't know where accessibility is in terms of, of you know, how, how much support or love it's getting right now. Um, there are some other issues too. Some of the buttons aren't labeled. So you, you tap it and you just hear button and then you have to sort of press it and hope for the best and figure out what it does. There's not a lot of those, but there's a few uh, more than there should be if someone was actively testing it before it was released. So um, I'm not 
I, I'm, I've been more disappointed in the past with clients where like, you know, it's mainly inaccessible. Threads doesn't fall into that category, but there definitely is room for improvement. Um, and unfortunately, though, as it stands right now, it looks like the only way to use threads is to use threads, meaning the actual threads client. Um, so there's not a lot of choice if you don't if you don't like that client, whether it's because of accessibility or or as we were saying with Twitter, maybe the experience is not that great. Um, you just don't have a choice um, with threads. Steve, you've been very generous with your time. And as I suspected, we have filled it up. Let me ask you uh, one last question. Um, not long ago, Ron DeSantis, a major presidential candidate, launched his candidacy on Twitter. And that uh, rollout was fraught with problems, but it did happen on Twitter spaces. It looks as if Tucker Carlson, the recently ousted Fox News pundit, is now trying a show solely on Twitter. Given that reality, where do you see Twitter heading under Elon Musk's leadership? Twitter, I think, still has lots of potential. Um, you know, uh, the idea that you can now stream content over it, um, you know, I, I think NFL has streamed content over Twitter. It still has this this you know concept where it's possible to you know anyone can can really be a broadcaster um, in a way, and that's hugely empowering. Um, the problem with it is that there's so much controversy right now and so much un, you know unpredictability around things, instability with some of the systems that you know kind of hold things together, and and we saw that sort of breakdown with the DeSantis announcement that, you know, th these are all great ideas in theory, but there needs to be solid plans and leadership to make those things a reality and to really bring those to fruition. Um, you know, you, you can't just rush ahead and kind of worry about the little details later um, because the, it's those little details that make it ultimately fail. And I, I think that's the unfortunate part. So a lot of promise uh, I think exists with Twitter. I know Musk has also talked about using it as like a financial, like a payments platform to compete with some like PayPal type of, uh, you know, uh, platform to do international transactions and crypto and bringing all of that stuff. Um, and there is a lot of possibility to use Twitter for things like that, but you can't, all of that sort of thing takes planning. Um, it takes dedication. It It takes leadership. And that's the part that, I just haven't seen with Musk. It just seems to me, you know, from someone on the very outside that that he he has a sort of direction and the style is let's just try something and it'll stick or it won't. And when it doesn't, uh, let's, you know, let's try another thing and think, see if that sticks or not. And that's great if you're brainstorming, but it's hard to run a company that way. And I think it's hard to get people to really trust in it and believe in it as a brand. And I think that's the... The the under Elon Musk's leadership part of that it kind of brings, for me at least, into question not that so much the technical capabilities, but what the brand of Twitter looks like, and if that's a brand people are going to feel comfortable trusting uh, to engage with, either as a as a person who's who's submitting and providing content or as someone who wants to consume content, and that's that's I think the biggest thing that gets lost is. Uh, the the technical promise is there of something that could be truly awesome, but where is the brand at and where is that brand headed? And under Elon, I, I'm not so sure anymore. Yeah. I don't think anybody is. I don't think he is. Steve, it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. Well, likewise, thank you so much for having me. It's been truly an honor and and uh, thanks for talking about a topic that's been near and dear to my heart. I really have enjoyed the interactions I've had on Twitter and the people I've gotten to meet. I've learned a great deal. And for anyone who may hear this and think, gosh, you know, glad I never got into the social networking stuff. Um, it really is an interesting space. It's not all negative and doom and gloom. Um, there's a lot of positive as well. And and uh, I hope people check it out, whether Twitter or one of the newer uh, social networks, threads or Mastodon or whatever. Um, it, it really is an interesting, sorry, really is an interesting way to learn about the world around us and, and the people in it.
So thanks so much for having me. True enough. And to prove it, we will promote this podcast on Facebook and Twitter and maybe threads when it's up. So Steve, take care of yourself and keep in touch. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you so much for listening, folks. This has been Ryan O with a special edition of Tech It Out right here on the Radio Talking Book Service. Thanks so much for tuning in and stay tuned for our next program. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Tech It Out, the program that dances on the cutting edge of technology. Brought to you by Outlook Enrichment. More information is available at www.outlooken.org or by calling 531-365-5051. The Radio Talking Book Network is brought to you with the cooperation of KIOS-FM in Omaha and statewide through the facilities of NET Radio and Television. We've been proudly serving our blind and visually impaired listeners for 47 years. Thank you for being a loyal Radio Talking Book listener and supporter.